You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Deck, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we discussed the Second Pacific Adventure and the pirates John Cook, Edward Davis, Charles Swan, and William Dampier. We covered Swan and Dampier crossing the Pacific Ocean on board their ship Signet. We ended our story when they reached the island of Guam in the East Indies, and the East Indies are going to dominate our story for the next little while. Dampier, in particular, spent a lot of time in the East Indies, on this voyage and others. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the adventures he had there, and the local politics in which he got wrapped up. That's a theme we'll see time and time again. And we'll also look at the history of the East Indies, from the time of European contact, through the lens of three other explorers. Vasco da Gama, Ferdinand Magellan, and Francis Drake. We're not going to be going too deep into any of those stories. If you want more backstory about them, you could always go back and listen to our episodes about Drake, or you could read Over the Edge of the World by Lawrence Burgreen. It's a fantastic read about Magellan. Or I would recommend The Explorers Podcast with Matt Breen. It details the lives of a bunch of different explorers throughout history, and they're just starting a series on Francis Drake. And if you want to, you can go back. They did a full run on Ferdinand Magellan. It's an excellent listen. But instead of going deep into their stories, we are going to explore some of the parallels between those explorers' voyages and that of William Dampier. All of that history was well known to Dampier, and it absolutely would have informed many of the decisions he made. This is a big story as big as the Spanish conquest of the Americas easily, and we need to understand at least the outline of that story to understand what's to come. And all of that story begins with Vasco da Gama. This is episode 119, The Spice Must Flow. If we were to look at the ancient classical world throughout its very long history, we would see five major spheres of cultural influence— Sometimes those fears of influence were expressed as empires, and sometimes not, but they exist throughout history nonetheless. To put it very broadly, there was Rome, Greece, Persia, India, 
and China. There were, of course, many other great spheres of cultural influence in the world, the Tutsi people, the Mayans and Aztecs, but in the classical world, those were the big five. Occasionally, those spheres of influence would overlap or interconnect, but that's generally how they broke down. You know, from time to time, you would get an Alexander or a Xerxes or Caesar or Khan, and they would march into a neighboring territory and connect them, but that never lasted. Alexander's empire broke up after his death, as did Genghis Khan's. Even Rome, which was famed for their roads and communication networks and bureaucracy, they realized that London and Jerusalem could not effectively be governed from a single source. Even when those cultures evolved within their sphere of influence, when Rome went Christian, or when the Byzantines were conquered by the Ottomans, or when Persia converted to Islam, their areas of influence stayed roughly the same. When the Mongols took over parts of China, India, Persia, the Muslim world, and even some of what was once Rome, the cultures there stayed intact. What I'm getting at is that while the culture itself may have changed, those spheres of influence rarely did. Largely, this is due to geographic barriers. You know, those spheres of influence are defined by deserts and mountains and seas. When it's difficult for people to cross borders, cultures won't shift that rapidly. And you'll notice that throughout most of history, Rome and China had very little contact. And not just literally the Roman Empire, but the sphere of influence that was Western Rome, you know, Europe, essentially. I'm talking about, in the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic world. The Eastern Roman Empire, on the other hand, is more of a Greek sphere of influence. But even when the Silk Road was up and running, the Roman world and the Chinese world had very little direct contact. But then we enter into the Age of Sail, and everything changes. New and better ships allowed the Roman world, Roman Catholic Europe, to finally visit India and China with relative ease. And this all goes back to the 1453 fall of Constantinople, the loss of the European access to the Silk Road, and of course the extremely lucrative spice trade. This is the impetus of the Age of Discovery. It's really the jumping off point for our whole story. And mostly throughout our story thus far, we've focused on the West. Christopher Columbus, the Conquistadors, the Spanish Empire, expansion into the West Indies. But remember the Treaty of Tordesillas? That papal bull that effectively split the world up between Spain and Portugal? Well, essentially it granted Spain the right to colonize the Americas and Portugal the right to colonize Asia. Now, nobody really knew that yet because they didn't exactly know what was out there, but they both rushed to figure out what the Pope had granted them. And the story of that Portuguese expansion begins with Prince Henry the Navigator. He was among the first European explorers to explore the Atlantic and the coast of Africa. In his wake followed Diogo Cao, who pushed farther down the coast of Africa, almost into the southern Atlantic, but it was the voyage of Bartolomeu Dias in 1488 that finally rounded the southern tip of Africa. And that's actually a lot more complicated than it sounds. The southern Atlantic Ocean, between South America and Africa, has a counterclockwise wind pattern. From the Portuguese settlements in northwest Africa, the winds along the coast blow north. It's difficult to go south. 
So what Dios had to do here was follow those winds counterclockwise out to the west. He almost but didn't quite make it to Brazil, and then followed those winds south into the southern Antarctic Ocean. Those frigid winds, at the right time of year, blow east to the Cape of Africa. Dias named that Cape Cabo Tormentas, due to the storms and high winds. But actually, right here, the ship designs are worth noting. The voyages thus far, those of Dias and Henry the Navigator, well, they used mostly, in fact exclusively, Latin-rigged ships, those triangular sails that date back to ancient Rome, hence the name Latin-rigged ships, They had the ability to tack against the wind, which gave great maneuverability, but they lacked in power. And power was necessary for traversing the open ocean. Spain was using square-rigged galleons to take advantage of the Atlantic trade winds to conquer the New World. Square-rigged sails, especially with two or three masts, each with two or three sails, allowed ships to make good time on the open ocean and Portugal decided to incorporate those into their navy to gain access to Asia. To that end, King Manuel I of Portugal ordered Vasco da Gama to set sail from Lisbon in 1497. His mission was to find India. And, you know, the Portuguese knew India was there. The king had sent spies overland to scout out ports of call and the political climate, but the entire purpose of this voyage was to find the sea route to India. Da Gama made his way south. Following essentially the same route as Bartolomeu Dias, Da Gama was a little more efficient, but he used the same wind patterns. He caught the westerlies and made the cape. They passed the furthest point of Bartolomeu Dias on 16th December, 1497. That means that this was officially the longest sea voyage in history. After rounding the cape, They stopped at the island of Madagascar. They took on water, but they found the locals there less than welcoming. These were the ancestors of the people with whom James Misson and Thomas II would have dealings years and years later. Here in the 1490s, they were a bit xenophobic. Isolationists, even. Mostly that was due to a Muslim kingdom on a nearby island that stretched onto the mainland. That was the kingdom of King Musa ben Bik, an Arabian king who was ruling over an African populace there. Now, this king was not associated with the Ottoman Empire, but he did trade with them. He was a bit expansionist, though. He did try to push out into mainland Africa and had tried to make his way over to Madagascar only to be chased off, hence why the locals were not exactly welcoming. Vasco da Gama arrived in Mozambique, in the kingdom of Musa ben Bik, in March 1498. The king was not impressed with these Portuguese traders, though, and he was worldly enough to recognize Roman Catholics. He'd seen them when he was a merchant. He chased da Gama off. You know how Francis Drake is sometimes considered a forerunner of Caribbean piracy? It might be a bit of a stretch to call da Gama a similar forerunner to Red Sea piracy, but it's not totally off-base. This voyage under Vasco da Gama turned to piracy. They needed food and supplies, kind of desperately. They wanted to trade for it, but nobody seemed to be willing. Madagascar had turned them away. Musa Bonbik turned them away. 
and their next port of call, Mombasa, was openly hostile. So they turned to their last option and started capturing ships for the food and water. But they found these ships to be extremely easy prizes. I mean, think about where da Gama was from. Portugal was really close to Africa, and Barbary pirates were a thing. Oruge and his ear Barbarossa were operating at this time, alongside their friend Piri Rais. Now, they weren't famous yet, they were still very young men, but they were operating in the Mediterranean. And actually, they'll come into play a little bit later. But even beyond that, the Portuguese faced rivals from the Ottoman Empire and Spain and Italy and France... Every ship back home had arms on board, but these traders outside of Mombasa did not. At least, they didn't have arms of any consequence on board. They had bows and scimitars, but no guns. The Portuguese here saw just what easy pickings the ships were. Now, I don't want to say that this is the dawn of Red Sea piracy or anything so grandiose, but this is something of a harbinger of things to come. However, the next stop of Vasco da Gama was a lot friendlier. They stopped at a city called Melindi, just to the north of Mombasa. Melindi was an independent city-state. The leader of Melindi was a sultan, and many of the people in Melindi were Muslim. But Melindi was on the fringes of the Ethiopian Empire, and the Ethiopians were Christians. The people of Melindi were a lot more open-minded about religion than the people of Mombasa or Mozambique. Now, Vasco da Gama was very interested in the Ethiopian Christians. You know, Ethiopian Christianity dates back all the way to the New Testament. At least, that's what the Bible tells us. But even if that's not literally true, there were Levantine missionaries in the 2nd century that did make it to Ethiopia. That's the basis behind the whole Prester John myth, that Christian king who bedeviled the heathens from the other side of the empire. Da Gama was very interested in all of these potential ramifications, so he established relations with the people of Malindi. It would be a friendly port of call for the Portuguese from here on out. See, Malindi was in conflict with their southern neighbors, and they needed allies in that fight. A bit later on, the Portuguese would set up storehouses there and an embassy, and they traded spices and weapons with them. Melindi and the Ethiopian Empire would send an embassy to Portugal to meet with the king to formalize their agreement. This was all kind of a big deal for Vasco da Gama, but it wasn't his mission. And he was reminded of that fact when a very strange-looking ship carrying odd-looking sailors and fragrant spices, arrived in Melindi. Who these sailors were, what they looked like, what religion they followed, where they were from, well, all of that remains up for debate to this day. And it's a stupid debate based on religious propaganda. I don't really care to delve into the politics behind it, but in short... Muslim leaders, a bit later on, would say that they were clearly Muslim sailors. Hindu leaders would say they were clearly Hindu sailors. And honestly, the most likely possibility is that they were Chinese Muslim sailors working for a Hindu ruler. But it really doesn't matter. If you don't have a dog in that fight, what matters is what happens next. Vasco da Gama followed that ship out of Melindi on 24th April, 
they sailed directly for the primary center of trade in the entire region, the city of Calicut. Now, Calicut is on the western coast of modern-day India, and we shouldn't confuse it with Calcutta, that's on the east coast. Calicut had thrived for centuries as a sort of a trade depot. The trade route worked out like this. Chinese merchants would buy goods in the Spice Islands, mostly nutmeg, cinnamon, pepper, cloves, ginger, and mace. Then they would transport those spices to Calicut, where they would sell them. Egyptian Mamluk merchants would buy spices in Calicut and transport them up the Red Sea to Cairo. Venetian merchants would buy the spices in Cairo and sell them in Europe. And you can start to see the problem here. You know, black pepper would be bought in Indonesia, sold at a profit in Calicut, and bought again. Then it would be sold, bought, sold, and bought, and by the time it reached European tables, it had been bought four or five times. It was prohibitively expensive. That's the entire point of this voyage that Vasco da Gama was making. He was sailing to India, well, you know, kind of to prove that it could be done, and to map out the coasts and the wind patterns, and all of that was important, but the reason he was doing that was to make contact with the ruler of Calicut. He was to ingratiate himself with the ruler, called the Zamorin of Calicut. If he did so, then they could cut out the middlemen, the Egyptian and Venetian middlemen. That would have huge economic ramifications for the people of Portugal. But we need to break down some of the regional politics at play here. The Zamorin of Calicut was a hereditary Hindu position, he was king of several hundred miles of what's called the Malabar coast of India. He ruled over a mostly Hindu populace, but he ruled kind of at the behest of a Muslim merchant class. See, there were a lot of Islamic states in India at the time, and all of them were vying for control of India with each other and with the traditional Hindu leaders. The Zamorin of Calicut ruled a good chunk of the Indian coastline, but just inland there was an Islamic state that had him essentially surrounded. And that state was... Well, it wouldn't be strictly accurate to say they were a vassal state of the Egyptian Mamluks, but they were very closely allied to the Egyptian Mamluks with deep, ancient ties. And actually, that Islamic state provided the navy for Calicut. And both of them, the navy and the neighbor, reported to the Mamluk Sultanate in Egypt. Now, the Mamluks were happy to let the Zamorun of Calicut rule. The people of the region, the Hindus, wanted their Hindu leader. The Zamorun was happy to serve because, you know, he got to be king and he got really, really rich in the process. And Venice was happy with the whole arrangement because they had a monopoly on all of the spices of the Orient. And they had for 50 years now, ever since the fall of Constantinople. The reason that Venice had such an interest in controlling the eastern Mediterranean was to keep their trade routes to Egypt and therefore to Asia open. Vasco da Gama was here in Calicut with intentions to undermine all of that. Of course, it didn't work out. The Zamorin, when he heard that there were foreign visitors in his capital, did rush to Calicut to meet the emissaries, but when he saw them, he was 
disappointed. The gifts that they brought with them were poor compared to what he had in his palace. He asked Agama, why had he come? And Agama replied, quote, in search of Christians and spices, end quote. And there's actually something worth noting here. That whole Prester John myth, they thought that this might be Prester John, or at least that the Hindus might be some strange form of Christian. They realized that they were neither Jewish nor Muslim, but they thought that maybe after centuries of being removed from what they saw as the one true church, they may have developed some strange customs. Of course, the Zamorin was not a Christian, nor was he impressed. His advisors, his Muslim merchant advisors, had received word of Dagama's outrages in the Indian Ocean, and they informed the Zamorin that this man was nothing more than a barbarian and a pirate. The Zamorin dismissed Dagama. However, Dagama did beg one last favor. He wanted to establish a factory in Calicut, and by factory he meant a warehouse. He wanted a center for Portuguese trade. The Zamorin refused him, though. However, he did permit Dagama to trade while he was here. And they did, but then Dagama made a very smart move. On his last day in Calicut, he kidnapped four local merchants and put them aboard his flagship. And that, well, that's basically the end of Vasco da Gama's voyage. I mean, you know, it was only half over in reality. He had to make it back to Lisbon, and he did have a little trouble doing so. The wind patterns in the Indian Ocean are tricky, and they didn't know anything about them yet. But we're going to talk about those later on when they impact the Red Sea pirates. Vasco da Gama did eventually make it back to Melindi. Now, many of his men had scurvy, so they spent some time there getting better, and the king of Melindi sent an emissary with da Gama. They rounded the Cape going the opposite direction, and they returned to Lisbon on 29 August, 1499. Now, at face value, the voyage might have seemed to be a failure. They had lost half the men with which they had left, and they had scuttled half their ships. Vasco da Gama also failed in his primary mission, the mission to establish trade with India. But the king of Portugal, Manuel I, was pleased nonetheless. The news was good. When Vasco da Gama described the troublesome Cabo Tormentas, the king corrected him. It was not a cape of torment, it was a cape of good hope. The king wrote a letter to the other monarchs of Europe that read, quote, We sent Vasco da Gama, our noble servant, on a quest of discovery. They set off to cross the seas and were gone for two years. They entered and sailed the sea to find great cities buildings, riches, and large settlements. There they found an extensive trade in spices and precious stones from Mecca to Cairo via sailing ships. Our discoverers actually saw them and consider them a large, well-equipped fleet. From Cairo, the trade spreads itself all over the world, and we have the following products of it. Cinnamon, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, pepper, and other spices. We also have many fine stones, such as rubies, among others. End quote. King Manuel had many reasons to be pleased. Vasco da Gama did make contact with at least one friendly power in the region, and he had discovered the source of all of the spices in the world. Sort of. This letter was a victory lap. 
So check this out. King Manuel was allied to Ferdinand and Isabella, the Catholic monarchs of Aragon and Castile, the mother and father of Spain, the forebears of Charles V. But not only was he allied to Ferdinand and Isabella, Manuel I of Portugal married not one, but two of their daughters. When the first one died, they gave him another. They were his mother and father-in-law twice over. This letter was King Manuel's way of saying to his, probably mostly to his mother-in-law, Isabella, Oh, I hear you met some Indian savages, but I met some real Indians, okay? Because I found the sea route to Asia. Na-na-na-na-na-na. Not to mention, even if Vasco da Gama did lose dozens of men in two ships and failed his mission, well, he brought back a lot of spices. Spices that, had they come through the Venetians, would have cost a kingdom. And whatever tone I might have put on Manuel's letter there, the Spanish were very happy about this news. Manuel was a very close ally, their son-in-law, and he was about to provide extremely valuable goods for a fraction of the price at which they were currently available. Goods that Ferdinand and Isabella could definitely afford because they were about to strip America of all the gold. A number of powerful German princes were also happy with the news. These were princes who shared a border with Venice and were tired of the Venetian attitude about the spice thing. This was if you were the right people, very good news. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, all. Eric Rivenus with the most notorious podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. The events of the next decade in the Indian Ocean would spell the end of Venetian hegemony, and their battles in the Mediterranean with Ottoman Barbary pirates would nail their coffin shut. So I'm going to kind of rush through the next two decades or so. The very year that da Gama returned to Portugal, Manuel I ordered another armada assembled, and this was a proper armada. Vasco da Gama's voyage is considered the first Portuguese India Armada, but it was a small fleet. The second armada, under Admiral Don Pedro Alvarez Cabral, had over 1,500 men and 13 well-armed ships. At least four of the captains in the fleet had already made the trip around the Cape of Good Hope. Two of them had served in da Gama's mission, and the other two were Bartolomeu Dias and his brother Diogo. Diogo had served not only with his brother's 1488 mission, but he was a clerk on board Vasco da Gama's flagship, 
He'd rounded the Cape four times now. In addition to Portuguese ships, there were three or four ships in the fleet that were supplied and provisioned by Spanish and German nobles who wanted a cut of the action. Cabral, when he sailed south, finally stumbled upon Brazil. Now this might have been a secret directive he was given by the king, or maybe not, but they realized that Brazil fell under their control according to the Treaty of Tordesillas, so, you know, that's cool, but they had other business in India. Their fleet had lost six ships by the time they rounded the Cape. They still had an impressive array of firepower, but that was a serious blow. Two of those ships managed to return to Lisbon, but two of them were lost completely. The other two were the ships that belonged to the Dias brothers. They were separated from the fleet by a terrible storm, and it's likely that they were taking a slightly different tack because they had a slightly different mission on the coast of Africa. But Diogo Dias wandered the sea for months. He was completely lost. He fell under siege by Madagascar raiders and then by Red Sea Muslim pirates and only returned to Lisbon a year later with six crewmen left on board. His brother, though, Bartolomeu Diaz, the first captain to round the Cape of Good Hope, was never seen again. However, Cabral, the admiral of this fleet, received a warmer welcome in Mozambique than da Gama had, Perhaps this had something to do with the six warships that Cabral had under his command. The admiral also visited Milandi to drop off the emissary that they'd sent on to Lisbon with da Gama. The alliance between Portugal and Milandi was codified and literally set in stone, as in there's a huge stone pillar that's still there. Then this fleet crossed to Calicut. They had a much more impressive display than Vasco da Gama had. They had hundreds of soldiers and warships that were more powerful than anything the Zamorin had in his fleet. Cabral sent messengers ashore to discuss terms for a meeting, which is kind of a power move. But he had an ace up his sleeve here. Those four merchants that Vasco da Gama had kidnapped, well, he brought them along. And he sent them on to the Zamorin as a sign of good faith. He told the Zamorin that he wanted a meeting, but only if the Zamorin was willing to exchange hostages. Now, this was in fact a different man than the Zamorin whom da Gama had met, and he agreed. When Don Pedro and the Zamorin of Calicut met, Don Pedro had gifts that far outshined anything that da Gama had brought with him. He had chests of gold and exotic Portuguese art and beautifully illuminated Bibles. Plus, and this is a big thing, he had a personal letter from the king. You know, this is more like it. The Zamorin was willing to negotiate a trade treaty. He gave preferential trade to the Portuguese and even granted them that warehouse in Calicut. Now, the Arabian merchant class in Calicut was incensed, but this was kind of a young buck Zamorin with wild new ideas willing to push the envelope. The Portuguese spent two months buying spices in Calicut, and they did so in huge quantities. They set up their warehouse to serve as, well, yeah, a warehouse for all of the spices, but also kind of a military base and embassy for the Portuguese in Calicut. Then they dispatched Franciscan friars to 
maybe convert the people, or see exactly what their religion is all about, and the Portuguese began to relax into their new roles as friends of the Zamorin. Now, the Arabian merchants were the real power in Calicut, and the merchants under Cabral, the Portuguese merchants, suspected that they were being shut out of the best deals. Or it's possible that the Portuguese merchants were getting involved in some shady behind-the-scenes politics, but nobody really knows what happened. There was just tension between these two factions. In the end, Pedro Cabral seized an Arab merchant ship and commandeered their goods, but an angry mob of Arab merchants responded. They swarmed the Portuguese warehouse, and as many as 70 Portuguese were killed. And then the mob reclaimed all of their goods that had been paid for by the Portuguese. Cabral waited for a reply from the Zamorin, who was supposed to be his friend, but the Zamorin stayed quiet. And then Admiral Cabral declared war. He captured ten ships in the harbor that belonged to Arabian merchants and took all of their spices. Then he commenced in a day-long bombardment of the city of Calicut. Now Calicut didn't have a fortress. When Cabral was done, the waterfront was in ruins. The Portuguese were forced to leave one man behind, but they wouldn't be able to get ashore to rescue him. In the end, they turned around thumbed their noses at the Zamorin, and sailed back to Lisbon with ships filled to the brim with valuable spices. And we can kind of begin to leave the politics behind here. Cabral did make some alliances on the Indian coast, but they aren't really that important. The third Portuguese armada that would come the next year had a few dealings with them, but much more importantly, the third Portuguese India armada rescued the spy, I mean merchant that had been accidentally left behind, and then they got into a battle with the forces of Calicut. Because of course they did, because the year before, their admiral had bombed Calicut into ruin. But King Manuel would send out an armada every year. And you know, they started to get a lot better at the sailing part of the voyage. They worked out all of the wind patterns and seasonal shifts and, well, they kept getting into fights. They were at war with Calicut, after all, but despite those fights, they kept walking away with holds full of spices. But it's the seventh Portuguese India Armada where things really ramped up. You know, it takes about, oh, I don't know, seven years or so to complete a fleet of 400-ton warships. Eleven of them, to be exact a fleet that was paid for largely with the profits from six other voyages, a fleet that was complete with 2,500 elite Portuguese soldiers, along with ten additional ships and enough sailors to get them all to India, an armada of 21 ships, Portuguese, Spanish, and German, set sail from Lisbon in 1505. This was not a merchant voyage. The goal of this voyage was not to bring home a cargo of spices. This was an armada built for war, and it was commanded by Dom Francisco de Almeida. Spoiler alert, Dom Francisco was the first viceroy of Portuguese India. The armada of Dom Francisco cut a swath of destruction through the sea route to Asia. 
he guaranteed Portuguese dominance in the region. Now they left Mozambique alone, because Mozambique had been friendly to them after that first voyage. But Mombasa and the other Islamic strongholds to the south, well, they were obliterated. Malandi, the friendly city, helped in that effort and sent ground forces to occupy whatever was left of those cities. And they expanded into an empire that was essentially a vassal state of Portugal. That kingdom always gave safe harbor to any Portuguese who needed it. And in the near future, they would, briefly, convert to Roman Catholicism. Along with Ethiopia, they controlled most of eastern Africa for some time. But the fleet of Dom Francisco sailed east, across the Indian Ocean. They destroyed a couple of Arabian fleets on the way, and when they arrived, they started building forts in the territory of the Zamorin. Now Calicut sent a small navy and a small army to try and oust them, and in one engagement they did kill the admiral's son, but they were never able to get rid of the Portuguese. Dom Francisco vowed revenge for the murder of his son, and he took up his new post as Viceroy of India. The allies that the Portuguese had made in the region, the rivals to the Zamorin, were to the south of Calicut, and the Portuguese built their center of power right at their northern border, so they had friends to the south who could supply them with men and food and such, and they were able to defend themselves against anything that the Zamorin could send at them. By the time the next Portuguese India Armada arrived, they were deeply entrenched on the coast of India. And they were so secure that they were actually able to start sending out explorers to explore Southeast Asia. But Dom Francisco was only moderately interested in exploration. His job was war. He incorporated four successive India armadas into his fleet. He built fortresses all around the region. They were not exactly impenetrable, but a very strong military presence now. But then, in 1509, Dom Afonso de Albuquerque arrived to inform Almeida that his tenure as viceroy was up. Now Almeida was unhappy with this news, not exactly because he thought he should be viceroy for life or anything like that, but he had not yet fulfilled his vow for revenge. He wanted Calicut to pay for his son's life. The battle that was building here had been... Well, you know, between 1505 and 1509, there were a ton of battles in the Indian Ocean. There were even a few skirmishes on land. But this had been building for years. And Almeida needed to be involved here. See, this was going to be the glorious culmination of his term as Viceroy. This was going to be the battle that proved he was, you know, worthy. Now, the armada that was being assembled was built by the Mamelukes of Egypt. And they had a small navy, but they brought in all of the other forces from their alliance. Those Muslim Indian vassals of the Mamluks, they brought in a navy. Whatever forces Calicut had to offer, they brought in as well. And then, the Republic of Venice sailed a fleet down the Mediterranean to Alexandria, where they disassembled the fleet. Then they marched it overland and reassembled the fleet in Suez. That shows you just what the Republic of Venice had to lose. This was an impressive force, but, uh... Well, you know how when people talk about World War I, they just love to talk about 
you know, the cavalry charge against a line of tanks. They like to talk about the disparity in forces that kind of symbolizes the dawn of a new age. Well, this battle here was a lot like that. The forces of the Mamluks and Calicut, well, they brought the best ships they had to offer, but all they had were bows and scimitars. The Venetians had some guns on board their ships, but not a lot. I mean, thirty years earlier, those bows and scimitars would have been the primary naval force in these waters, but now, well, they were facing brigantines and galleons that were filled with cannon and men that were wielding matchlock muskets. The Mamluk navy didn't stand a chance. This is called the Battle of Dieu, and it's not a particularly interesting naval battle. The forces of the Mamluks and Calicut and Venice lost. Portugal gained a stranglehold on the Indian Ocean, and that stranglehold would last for decades. Dom Afonso would establish a fortress on the island of Gua, and that fortress would serve as the capital of Portuguese India for years, and from Gua the Portuguese expanded deep into Southeast Asia. The Mamluk Sultanate never recovered. In fact, this was kind of their death knell. The Ottoman Empire moved in and took over Egypt, and if you think back to our time with the Barbarossa brothers, you might remember this incident. This was what allowed them to move all the way over into Africa. Piri Rais, a top Ottoman admiral and a close friend of the brothers Barbarossa, was tapped to command the naval forces of Egypt. He was also given instructions to build a fleet in Suez that would command the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean and push these Catholic dogs from their waters. That's going to come into play soon. Calicut never recovered either nor did their Muslim allies in India. Well, Calicut survived, but the Zamorin did not. Portugal took over the entire area that had once belonged to Calicut, until, a few years down the line, a Persian dynasty, descendants of Genghis Khan, called the Mughal dynasty, moved in. But perhaps the greatest power that was brought to their knees was Venice, it wasn't the battle that destroyed them, they had plenty of naval strength left, but their monopoly on the spice trade was broken. Their income basically ceased when the Ottoman Empire took over Egypt. Portugal now commanded the global trade in Asian spices, and Manuel I, king of Portugal, grew unfathomably wealthy. He became one of the most powerful kings in the world almost overnight, based entirely on cinnamon and nutmeg and pepper. He was called, to his face, Manuel the Fortunate. Behind his back, though, he was called the Grocer King. And this world that we see in the wake of the Battle of Dieu is a world that's familiar. It sets the stage for the story of piracy in the East Indies. At least, all of the major players are in place. Most of them, at least. Next time, we're going to introduce the last major global player as we continue our look at William Dampier and compare that to the voyage of Ferdinand Magellan. But one final note here. I always hesitate to say who might be my favorite explorer, largely because of the many, many abuses that nearly every explorer of the Age of Discovery took part in. And I mean... 
Even if one particular explorer were peaceful, their actions led to centuries of brutal colonization. But I like Vasco da Gama. There's just something about his story, which, if you have the opportunity, you should look up. It's an interesting story filled with intrigue and political drama and a lot of ties to Christopher Columbus. I definitely suggest it. But throughout his life, despite all of the hardships that he faced, and there were many, Vasco da Gama always seems to come out on top. He always wins. It's inevitable. It's, it's like he can't help winning. I mean, take his family name, for example. Da Gama means huntsman. It's derived from the Latin word for a huntsman's prey, da Gama. His ancestors, many generations before Vasco da Gama was born, were the huntsmen for the king of Portugal. That's how they got their family name. And whenever I read about da Gama, I'm forced to think about that etymology. I focus on his family name, and I realize that I, and by extension you, dear listener, have lost the game. I apologize for that, but I would like to thank everybody for listening, and I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show. Without all of your help, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight